Nothing cuts us to the quick quicker than this concept of something being unfair or unjust. When, when somebody says, hey, that's not fair, immediately our minds go to trying to make it fair. We, we want things to work out. And when it doesn't work out, we feel cheated. We want God to respond. We want him to even the score. We want him to enact perfect vengeance so everything works out like it's supposed to. We seldom witness that, though, on a regular basis in our lives. I believe God will bring everything to justice. That's his promise. But on his timetable, not ours. There's a perfect illustration of this truth that we find in the life of Elijah. Uh, and it's a really unique story. As a matter of fact, this plot would be perfect as a narrative for criminal minds. And, uh, and we're going to see how it unfolds here in a few minutes. Uh, uh, the story is filled with integrity and disappointment, with conniving, intrigue, and murder. Uh, it is carried out by a pouting king, an honorable farmer, an evil villainous, and disreputable witnesses. It's a good story. The story opens, and we are introduced to a man by the name of Naboth. Now, we know very little about Naboth except that he was from Jezreel, which was the winter palace home of, of King Ahab. And since Jezreel appeared in the territory that was the tribe of Issachar, we kind of think that Naboth might have been of that tribe of Issachar because his home and his family's heritage had been there for a long time. He's an honorable man. This Naboth, he is committed to the word of God, which leads me to wonder if this was one of the 7,000 left in the northern kingdom who had not worshipped the idols. That this man was one of those that had main, remained true to God. Now here's where he enters the story. Naboth owns this quaint little vineyard that is right next to the palace, the winter palace, I should say, of King Ahab. And that's where Ahab, the second character, comes into the story. This, this man, who we have seen already as being so self-centered and self-serving that um, uh, he is disgusting, it seems, at every angle. That the tragedy of this is that, that Ahab, more than any other kings before him of the ten northern tribes collectively called Israel, had more potential and yet failed so miserably that God promised he would purge the entire land of any of his descendants. More biblical text is devoted to Ahab than any other northern king in the Bible. And yet, almost all of that text is of a negative sort. Now, with all that said... Ahab still could not hold a candle to his wicked, loathsome wife, Jezebel. Let, let, let me remind you that during her reign, she erected more altars and worship sites to pagan deities than any other time in Israelites' history. She was nasty. She was manipulative. She was malevolent. She was bad to the bone. And all who knew her feared her. Now, here's, here's one of those ironies to me. Ahab and Jezebel lived in a day and time when they had access to the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, Elijah. And instead of leaning on him and God's counsel, they considered the prophet and the God that he served as enemies. Well, the story unfolds like this. Ahab has his eye on this vineyard. He's got 
this palace. He's got a summer palace. He's got more money than he can spend in two or three lifetimes, but he's got his eye on this little vineyard. He wants to turn it into a vegetable garden. Naboth was all he had. It was his inheritance, folks. It had been passed down from generations. This had belonged to his family for, well, for as long as we can tell. Uh, Ahab wanted it in the worst way, And I really think that the reason he wanted it so bad was he didn't need a vegetable garden. It was just something he didn't have that was near the palace. Somebody else owned that property, and he wanted it himself. So Ahab offered to buy it at top dollar value or trade Naboth for a bigger vineyard somewhere else. He just wanted that piece of property. But Naboth didn't want anything to do with the offer. It wasn't that the king's offer was unfair. He promised to pay him top dollar or give him a big vineyard elsewhere. Ahab's problem was not the offer. It was just that Naboth didn't want any part of it. Do you know why? Because the Old Testament law required that everybody had lasting rights to an inherited piece of property and no one, not even the king, was allowed to force that person to sell that property if it had been inherited. God wanted to make sure that families maintained land. And so it was inherited and passed on from generation to generation. Naboth's roots were there. Naboth's legacy was there. And it meant more to him than more ground somewhere else. So Ahab gets the answer, no, which is not the answer he was looking forward to. He understood the law. He goes home, plops down on his bed and pouts and refuses to eat. When you have something or when you want something that you can't have, you end up wanting it more than you did beforehand. Now when the answer is no, Ahab just desperately wants that property. Now, this is the first sin of the story. It is the 10th commandment that is at stake here. Do you you remember what the 10th commandment is? You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. That would include an inherited vineyard. Now, what does it exactly does it mean to covet something? Well, the, the word covet actually grows out of the Hebrew word for desire. Now, there's, folks, there is nothing wrong with the desires of our heart. God gave us those desires. Your desires are different than somebody else's and different than mine, but, but they are who you are. They, they grow out of your life. There's nothing wrong with desire. The command does not condemn the desire to have a husband or wife or a house or a car or friends or even a donkey if that's your choice. What the 10th commandment forbids is not a passionate longing for a house like your neighbor, but the resentment that your neighbor has that house and you want that house and you'll stop at nothing to get that house. It's not about desire. It's about resentment and manipulation to get what you want at the cost of someone else. Author Albert Barnes comments on the last five of the Ten Commandments. He says, the Sixth, Seventh, and Eighth Commandments forbid us to injure our neighbor in deed. The Ninth forbids us to injure him in word, and the Tenth in thought. No human eye can see the coveting heart. It is witnessed only by him who possesses it and by him to whom all things are open. When you covet, only you and God know what's going on. And there's something insidious about a sin that nobody else can see. It's perhaps more deadly than any of the preceding commandments for that very reason. You can do something in your mind and get away with it 
and only you and God know what's going on. You can think of something that you would never do in front of somebody, but in your mind, you play out the whole story. And that's why this last commandment is so important. What starts in the mind often translates to action. Murder, adultery, theft, falsehoods all begin here before they happen in reality. Nobody ever murders somebody and then thinks about it. Nobody ever lies and then, oh, I, I didn't think that, that. That was a lie. Oh, it just came out of my mouth. My, my brain wasn't involved. You see, it always starts in the brain. Thoughts precede actions. And when you covet your neighbor's life, it may lead you to murder your neighbor so that you can have what was his, or it may cause you to commit adultery with your neighbor's spouse because you can't find any other way to deal with your passion, or it might cause you to steal from your neighbor so that you can have his fine possessions, or it might cause you to incriminate your neighbor through lies. And then while he's in prison, you take what is his. I'm telling you, keeping the 10th commandment determines whether or not we'll keep the other nine. These are not in order of importance so much, uh, if, if you, the, the last five, because the coveting part is the foundation upon which the other sins are built. God will never make coveting okay because a covetous attitude stands in direct contrast with the second half of the great commitment. Great commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. When you covet, you cannot covet and love your neighbor as yourself at the same time. Now, please remember this. When you covet things of this world, it's an act of futility because the things of this world can never ultimately satisfy. We get some enjoyment out of the things of this world, honestly. Yeah, that's true. But they can never ultimately satisfy. Last August, the Postal Service issued a a stamp, a forever stamp, uh, and it has the picture of Elvis Presley on it. It was not the first time they'd done that. Back in 1993, the post office issued its first Elvis stamp, which holds the distinction of being the all-time most popular commemorative stamp ever issued by the Postal Service. Elvis starred in 33 films, recorded 18 number one singles, racked up 14 Grammy nominations, and three Grammy wins. Before he died in 1977, Elvis had three jets, two Cadillacs, a Rolls Royce, a Lincoln Continental, two station wagons, a Jeep, a custom touring bus, and three motorcycles. But he died a lonely and unhappy man. He never discovered that which would make him content. The famous French author, Guy du Mupasa. I am so bad when it comes to French. (laughs) This famous author (laughs) was celebrated as a writer of some of the best short stories, world-renowned in his day. He had it all, wealth, fame, and prestige. And at the height of his fame, he attempted suicide and subsequently went insane before dying at the age of 42. He wrote his own epitaph shortly before he was committed to an asylum. This is what's on his tombstone. I have coveted everything and taken pleasure in nothing. I'm telling you, folks, keep your priorities straight. Do not covet. When you covet, when I covet, it always results in destruction. Okay, back to the story. Jezebel enters the palace 
and finds Ahab sprawled out on his bed. He's not eating. He's pouting. And she says to him, what in the world is going on? And Ahab replies, oh, sweetheart, I really, really, really want Naboth's vineyard, but he won't sell it to me. <sighs> or something like that. That's about the way the conversation went. And you can, you can almost hear the disgust in Jezebel's voice as she answered him. Is this how you act as the king of Israel? Get up and eat. Let me handle this. I'll get you Naboth's vineyard. And with that, she climbs on her broom and flies out of the room. <laughs> and her flying monkeys with her. <laughs> Using Ahab's royal seal, she composes some letters and she hatches her plan. Utilizing some of the duplicitous, duplicitous community leaders, they, they plot to have a religious fast. Okay, they're going to do something religious as a part of this dastardly plot. And so the community leaders are invited to come and they seat Naboth at the place of honor, like, like, like where you would pl place a guest of honor. Uh, you know, Naboth, the guy that owns the little vineyard, not much to own, but he's here as the guest of honor, so to speak. What they also do is they plant two notorious sleazeballs across the table who are going to bear false witness against him. Now, now remember, remember, the whole thing is being set up by breaking commandment number 10. You shall not covet. Now, commandment number nine crumbles before Naboth's very eyes and ears. These two scoundrels stand up and they say, hey, we want you all to know we heard Naboth condemn the king and blaspheme against God. Isn't it ironic? Jezebel, who hated God, now uses God as part of her justification for getting rid of Naboth. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, commandment number three. Just bit the dust. Poor Naboth. Naboth knows that none of this is true. As a matter of fact, it was his very commitment to the word of God that kept him from selling the property in the first place. He's the only noble, righteous, godly person in the whole story at this point in time. And yet it does not help him. And these compliant but spineless community leaders who conspired with the queen, they drag Naboth out of the city and they stone him to death on the word of two false witnesses Commandment number six, you shall not murder now implodes not far from the vineyard. Jezebel, who had cursed God with her unbelief, commandment number one, destroyed, you shall not have any other gods. And her idolatrous lifestyle, commandment number two, smashed, you shall not make an idol for yourself, is responsible for the death of this godly man. Do you see how they all come tumbling down? As soon as the deed was done, Ahab hops out of bed like a boy on Christmas morning and runs down to look at his new vegetable garden. He doesn't even ask what happens to Naboth. He doesn't care what has happened to Naboth. Maybe he secretly knows what has happened to Naboth. He just knows this, that now there is no owner of the vineyard and it's his. And commandment number eight is trampled underfoot like grapes in a wine press. You shall not steal. What a dastardly, cowardly, and selfish deed. Seven of the Ten Commandments lie shattered at their feet in just this one episode. 
And here's the question that keeps coming to my mind. Don't you ever wonder how God can watch such injustice take place and remain apparently silent? Ahab and Jezebel have reached the bottom of their moral abyss. Why didn't God intervene? Why didn't God do something to spare the life of this righteous man, this innocent man, Naboth? Why didn't God replace Ahab on the throne long before this so this evident event could never have taken place? Where is God in the midst of the scenario? I, I wish I had answers. There is not an unfairness and an injustice that happens in this world that it doesn't bring to mind, why does God let this happen? Why do bad things happen to good people? Now, let me say, tell you, I cannot pretend to understand the mind or the thoughts of God. Neither can you. The prophet Isaiah writes in chapter 55, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. I do not know why sometimes God intervenes and sometimes God does not. I can just tell you this, that God is brokenhearted at the broken world because of the sin in it. Naboth didn't deserve what happened. This was not the result of a poor choice or a sinful decision on his part. He was in the right. Everybody else was in the wrong. But wickedness in the palace trumps righteousness in the vineyard. The innocent suffered. The guilty prospered. And we are angry about it. I look around at life. That's the way life unfolds on a daily basis. You hear the doctors say the words inoperable cancer. And you don't hear anything else because you're so struck by the fact it's, it's not fair. You lose a good job down, due to downsizing or merger. It's not because you had a poor performance. It's because of the change in the company. But you were jobless nonetheless. It isn't fair. Your marriage falls apart. Not because you want it to, but because your spouse wants out. It's not fair. Your children leave behind the values that you've tried to instill within their hearts and minds. And go off down a different path. And you can't do anything about it. You think, oh, it's not fair. I tried so hard. Can I remind you folks that this morning when bad things happen to good people, it, it, it is not right. It's not fair. God is not pleased. And it's not God's doing. Was it fair that God had to die for my sin? No. Not hardly, but he made that choice so that you and I would have a choice of everlasting life. But I want you to know that when your highest hopes come crashing down and your dreams for the future lie shattered at your feet, God is the only one that can put them back together and give life sense. Instead of saying, why didn't you intervene, God? Why don't you pray, God, would you help me put my life back together? After all, that is his promise in Romans chapter 8, 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. I cling to that passage. I know you do too, because it says God may not intervene in every aspect of life, but somehow, some way, God will take this and put it back together again. Do not lose heart. Do not lose hope. God will bring suffering to a conclusion sometime. God is still on the throne and is working for his ultimate good. And in his time, all this will balance out.
And may I also remind you that God's perspective is not our perspective. God is able to look at the whole picture. We look at Naboth and we think, oh, poor Naboth. Oh, Naboth's family and the grief they're going through. Don't, don't feel too sorry for Naboth. He traded a small earthly vineyard for a home in eternity. That's not a bad swap. That's not a bad trade. From our perspective, it's a great loss. From his perspective, it was a great gain. The issue between the sovereignty of God and the boundary of human freedom is one that will never be completely understood in this life. That God gives us the privilege to choose right and wrong cannot be denied. But we never know where that line, that, uh, that, that boundary is crossed. Uh, only God knows that. Uh, Joseph Alexander wrote this. He said, there is a line by us unseen uh, that crosses every path. The hidden boundary between God's patience and his wrath. Be careful. Don't, don't willfully cross that line time and time and time again. There's a point at which the patience of God is filled. Well, the story continues. When Ahab arrived at the garden, guess who's there to meet him? <laughs> Our friend, the prophet Elijah. Ahab greets Elijah with these stinging words. So you have found me, my enemy. Elijah's powerful response reduces the king to fear. I have found you, he answered, because you have sold yourself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. I'm going to bring disaster on you. I will consume your descendants and cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free. I will make your house like that of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and that of Basha, son of Ahijah, because you have provoked me to anger and have caused Israel to sin. And also concerning Jezebel, the Lord says, dogs will devour Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. Dogs will eat those belonging to Ahab who die in the city, and the birds of the air will feed on those who die in the country. And then the writer of Kings adds this parenthetical clause that, that's a reminder how nasty King Ahab is. There never was a man like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel, his wife. He behaved in the vilest manner by going after idols like the Amorites the Lord drove out before Israel. When you think that God does not notice or worse, that God does not care or that God has lost track of you, I want you to remember this story. It may not happen in our lifetimes. It may not happen on our timetable, but God will bring to justice the wrongs of this world, which brings me to this passage in the book of Galatians. No story in the Old Testament to me speaks so boldly of what the book of Galatians says when Paul writes to the churches there in chapter 6, verse 7, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. God cannot be mocked. Now fast forward three years from this story in the vineyard. Ahab and King Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat was the king of the southern kingdom of Judah at this time. And they have collaborated to go into battle against the Arameans. And so here they're gearing up for battle. Ahab, ever since this, has been frightened. And so Ahab goes into this battle, but he doesn't dress in his kingly array like he should have and was supposed to. He dons the weaponry and the armor of a common soldier, and he rides with the common soldiers. And the Bible tells us that when Jehoshaphat, who was arrayed in his kingly attire, is the only one out there that looks like a king, it's where the battle turns and everybody goes after Jehoshaphat. Jumping Jehoshaphat. That's where we get that phrase, all right? So he's, he's trying to protect himself, 
And here's Ahab over here hiding in the army of an ordinary soldier. <clears throat> and the Bible says that a lone Aramean archer at random fires an arrow into the air and it finds a weakness in the armor of Ahab and mortally wounds him. His soldiers prop him up in the chariot. And as the sun was setting on the battle, the sun set on the life of the wickedest king of Israel. Ahab's gone. A man reaps what he sows. God cannot be mocked. Six years later, Jezebel's attendants can't stand her any longer. Don't know how they put up with her as long as they did. They can't see. They throw her out of an upper level window. She hits the ground. Their blood splatters on the wall of Jezreel. And the dogs come to eat her. When they took Ahab's chariot back to Jezreel, they washed it out at the very spot where Naboth had been stoned. And the dogs came to lick up his blood. God cannot be mocked. Whatever we sow is what we will reap. Hebrews 10.31 says it best, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God's word was vindicated in a vineyard. Now, while we dare not forget that picture, I, I don't want you to let go of that picture. I, I don't want you to, re, to think that th things can go on indefinitely as they are and God will never bring things to justice. That's not true. But that's not the picture. That's not the picture I want you to remember out of the story. That there is a, an incredibly beautiful nugget tucked into this vicious story. Let's go back to where Ahab and Elijah are in the vineyard. And Elijah is confronting him about his sin. And then in verse 27 it says, When Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and fasted. He lay in sackcloth and went around meekly. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself, I will not bring this disaster on in his day. I will bring it on his house in the days of his son. Oh, folks, I, I want you to know this morning. I wouldn't have given Ahab the time of day. I could have cared less how remorseful he was. I'd have just struck him with a bolt of lightning at that point. Poof! No more Ahab. But not God. Not God. God's justice is balanced by his mercy and great grace. The prophecy was not revoked, but it was postponed until after Ahab's death because of his repentant attitude. Don't tell me there is no grace in the Old Testament. This story is full of grace and mercy. As God says, wait, wait, look, Elijah, did you see? He's repenting. You know what? I'm not going to carry out that deed in his lifetime. I'm going to extend mercy to this wicked of, uh, of all kings. God's heart is touched by the power of repentance. You see, the heartbeat of this story is not how wicked Ahab was. It's not how innocent Naboth was. It's how gracious God is. The theme of the Bible from beginning to end is the same. God is a God of grace, even though we don't deserve it. Wow, what a story. Max Lucado put it this way. Even though by the book I'm guilty, by God's love I get another chance. Even though by the law I'm indicted. 
by mercy, I'm given a fresh start. Now we celebrate grace. We must never forget what, that we reap what we sow, that God cannot be mocked, that there will be a day of reckoning. But we celebrate his goodness. Sir John Laird Lawrence's memorial in Westminster Abbey consists simply of his name and a few words. Among those words is this quote. He feared man so little because he feared God so much. Wow. That describes Elijah. That ought to describe us this morning. That the God of all grace has caused us to leave behind everything else in this world to follow him with all heart and soul. Someday, justice will come to pass. But aren't you glad that it's grace that we cling to?